The Defense Department's journey to zero trust took an important step yesterday with the expected delivery of 43 plans of actions from the services and DOD agencies. These roadmaps spell out the steps each of these components will take to achieve the target environment by 2027. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me now to discuss how the DOD's Chief Information Officer's Office is going to use these plans to keep the rest of DOD on track. Jason, what are the plans all about in the first place? Tom, if you remember, DOD released their Zero Trust Strategy and Implementation Plan last November. This strategy, is just as a quick reminder, lays out four strategic goals, zero trust culture adoption, DOD information systems secured and defended, technology acceleration, and DOD and and zero trust enablement. There's 45 separate quote-unquote capabilities around seven pillars, devices, networks and environments, applications and workloads, data, visibility and analytics, and automation and orchestration. So over the last year, The military services and defense agencies have have been reviewing and analyzing their current cyber capabilities and what gaps exist. And these plans are really the roadmap to close those gaps. Randy Resnick is the director of the Zero Trust Architecture Program Management Office in DOD's CIO's office. He says his office wanted to make sure they were reviewing and rating everyone fairly through the same set of metrics. So Resnick says the CIO's office created metrics between February and July of this year. So that led into basically coming up with a table of contents a very prescriptive table of contents that we wanted to see in this plan, literally chapter by chapter and section by section, and then a whole bunch of appendices, as many as 10, with Excel spreadsheets that were already pre-populated with exactly what we wanted them to insert by the X and Y uh, axes. So there's no ambiguity of exactly what the uh, portfolio office wants to get Uh, And then on top of that, uh, we held monthlies uh, with the components. We held quarterlies with the components. And we also held one-on-ones off schedule with the components on anybody that had any questions about how to prepare the implementation plan. So suffice to say, everybody is in lockstep right now. Resnick says right now they're expecting the plans to really come in and say, okay, are they about 80 to 90% good? They, they figure that there'll be some push and pull there. Not everyone's going to be perfect. So over the next week or two, they'll go back and say, hey, we need this data or, hey, we need this information or, hey, we need this. And then they'll be broken down by infrastructures and whether on-premise, hybrid, or cloud. Without getting too deep, it's uh, improve on the ground, our course of action one, our commercial clouds, course of action two or a private cloud course of action three. And it'll be a mix of all that. So we're gonna get all this data. We're gonna be really busy, uh, heads down, but at the end of the year, let's say mid-December, uh, we'll have a really good picture of exactly where the department sits on that. Again, Randy Resnick from the DoD uh, Zero Trust Program Management Office. Now this is going to fall your reporting to the DoD CIO's office. And how will that particular operation use these to make sure that everybody else is held accountable? The accountability definitely will come from the DoD CIO's office as well as from Congress and, Tom, we can't forget the agency or DOD component-specific CIOs. Now, the requirement actually for this zero-trust implementation plan for each of the services and DOD agencies actually came from the 2023 Defense Authorization Bill. And Resnick says DOD will take on this oversight lead initially. Our plan that we've assembled, probably the equivalent of maybe uh, 17 or 18 FTE, you know, uh, full-time people, probably 25 people if you count them, uh, to spend the next 40 40- Six weeks, probably six weeks, analyzing every one of those plans and measuring the success of those plans on whether or not they're giving us the information so that we know every single component is going to be hitting target level zero trust or higher 
by uh, fiscal 27 or earlier. Now, after that initial review, Randy Resnick says DOD will send the report to Congress in December and brief lawmakers in January. Now, that's where that second layer of oversight will happen, assuming House and Senate Armed Services Committee members, they hold some hearings, they ask further questions after this initial meeting. But because they asked for it in the defense authorization bill, there's a, the assumption that they will continue to, to hold folks accountable. So I think it's the two two prong. DOD CIO and assorted CIO offices, and then Congress. Now, besides these plans of action, DOD wants to help services and agencies through what they call the Thunderdome Initiative. Remind us what that is, what the latest line of effort there under Thunderdome is. It's not something where you have a roller derby, right? This is not the Tina Turner and and Mad Max movie. I have to make that joke every time you say Thunderdome. You know that, Tom. Yes. This is the Defense Information Systems Agency. They kicked off the Zero Trust pilot through an other transaction authority agreement in an OTA back in January of 2022. They moved it into a, an OTA product uh, production and under a $1.9 billion production agreement in August of this year to Booz Allen Hamilton. And remember, Thunderdome is not a tool. It's really a set of capabilities that agencies and the DOD and services can use like software-defined networking and secure, secure access service edge or SASE. Imran Umar is the vice president and cyber leader at Booz Allen Hamilton working on Thunderdome. He says by the end of November, about 65 percent of DISA and the fourth estate agencies will be transitioned to Thunderdome. Partnering with CDAO, we implemented a streaming analytics pipeline. And the idea here is we're collecting all the sensor data from endpoints and IDPs, et cetera. And in line, we're enriching that data. We're normalizing that data. And we are deploying machine learning models on that streaming analytics pipeline. And what the value of that is as the data hits the wire, we are applying intelligence to that data. And by the time that data hits the same, the analyst already has all the data they need to take actions. We build two very specific uh, machine learning models that are currently deployed. One uh, domain generation algorithm, DGA. So these are, you know, DGA are a very common threat vector. They're generated through DNS-based attacks. So what we have done is we're using DGA models to do pattern analysis. We're identifying what are malicious URLs so that's been very effective. It gives us the probability score of the probability of how malicious this URL is. The second one we're building is called Sherlock. That goes after uh, HTTPS-based attacks. And, uh, you know, traditional signature-based models do not detect those threats. So there's Umar talking about AI and so forth within Thunderdome, but the agencies are using AI machine learning elsewhere when it has to do with zero trust? Absolutely. And as you said, Tom, you really just can't get away from it. It's everywhere you want to be. I think right now, a lot of the agencies, as they're looking at zero trust and what capabilities they currently have, they're saying, okay, how can we use some basics of AI and ML to really address mundane, data-heavy actions that they have to take? And and I'll give you a quick example. Renetta Spinks recently retired after spending the last two years as the deputy CEO of the Marine Corps. And she says the implementation of automation and AI tools is having a huge impact. She gave one example, for instance, Tom, where a cyber operator 16 to 17 hours a month to really what they call update your access. Are you who you said you are? Are you being as Tom Temin, Tom Temin, and, and how often do you have to do that? And she says through the use of automation tools and AI and ML tools, they've actually cut that way down and really given them back to really focus on important aspects of cybersecurity, which is the analysis, understanding where the anomalies are, and of course, 
uh, ensuring that they're protecting data and networks. So I think that that's an easy one. Uh, I think the other piece is around, uh, obviously, understanding data. As you heard Umar talk about, there's a lot of data coming in, too much for any one person to look at. I think uh, the Marine Corps is another one, and, and so our, our energy department would be a third who they're starting to really lean on these tools. Yeah, so over time, this really all does come together. Zero trust, AI, and actual improvement in the way government works. They certainly hope so. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts. 
uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, 
I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in- would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, 
somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have, to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.